Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me is a guy who likes to embed Easter eggs in all his articles. Senior writer Jonathan Strickland. A screaming comes across the sky. Wow! Thank you. That's significant. Yes. Uh, not for what we're talking about, really, but I, I like the quote. Uh, yes, today we are doing part one of a multi-part series on a company that has had a massive influence on the world of technology, Hewlett-Packard. And a massive influence on American business Oh yes, uh, yeah. as well. I mean, really, they're, without HP, there's not really a Silicon Valley. No. HP was kind of the, the kernel that would grow into the glorious crop that is Silicon Valley. And my metaphors are terrible today. Wow. Thanks. Okay. But anyway, yeah, HP is kind of a, it's one of those companies that really is the foundation for what we think of as Silicon Valley, even though you might not necessarily think of HP as an innovator, like the people who created the integrated circuit or, you know, it's not like it's Bell Labs or, or Texas Instruments even, but they were very good. It's a company that was very good at creating technologies that were, uh, priced lower, more efficient than other companies, and so really kind of propelled the electronics industry into the mainstream. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, their innovations came from uh, um, products that used those devices, transistors and and a lot of the other uh, devices that we've talked about uh, for other companies that have have been innovators in technology, yeah. Um, but it's funny because this is a this is a company where uh, two guys uh, met on a camping trip and ended up building a company based on negative feedback. Yeah, that's funny. Funny you should say it that way. Yeah. So um, let's let's we'll get into the, that. We'll moment. set the scene a little bit. So so in 1929, there mm-hmm. was a little event where uh, some stocks took a little dip. <laughs> And plunged the world into uh, poverty and economic chaos. Yeah, it was it was a depression that was so incredible. It was great, the yes. Great Depression. Mm-hmm. I the people who lived through it wasn't so great for them. No, but uh, yeah, the Great Depression hits in 1929, and really the world is in recovery all through the 1930s. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not something that the the world just bounces back from. But uh, in the mid-30s, two Stanford University students Mm -hmm. met, as you said, on on a camping trip. uh, Which I think is fascinating. Yeah. Uh, But these guys uh, were both uh, attending Stanford University and they're pursuing degrees in electrical engineering. And it was uh, William, Bill, Reddington, Hewlett, and Dave Packard. Yeah. um, Keeping in mind, too, we're, we're talking about the late 1920s and early 1930s. Um, regular listeners of Tech Stuff will remember our conversations about uh, AC versus DC back um, in, in, you know, within – we're talking within 50 years of places getting wired. So these guys are really kind of still on the cutting edge of uh, electricity. This yeah. is the point where people are studying uh, electrical engineering. So they're, you know, they're, they're getting in on the beginnings of um, – 
a brand new type of industry for the for the United States, right, and, and so, the world. And so they both graduate in 1935 with undergraduate degrees. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Hewlett was continuing his work. He was actually pursuing a master's degree in electrical engineering. Mm-hmm. And as part of his thesis, he began to work on a prototype of a device called an audio oscillator. And here's where negative feedback comes in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, one of one of his mentors uh, was very interested in this work and was kind of taking a shine. Uh, actually, he kind of took a shine to both of these lads Yeah, uh, back in the day. But, um, yeah. So the oscillator, in case you're wondering what it's supposed to do, it actually creates a steady, specific tone. And you can, you know, choose various tones depending upon the oscillator. It's not right. like it, it's not like it, it's not a machine that only goes beep. No. Uh, but it allows you to create a, a steady, specific tone. And it's really a used as a, um, a, a measurement device. It's to mm-hmm. help try and test other devices. And, for a long time, that's what Hewlett-Packard, the company, was known for producing. It wasn't known for producing devices that the average person would find useful. It was producing devices that industries were using to test their own equipment so that the equipment was you know, properly running. Yeah, uh, HP, I would, I would argue that HP was a business-to-business company, not completely, but for the most part, up until the late 20th century. Yeah. Yeah. So this oscillator, uh, this prototype that that Hewlett creates, ends up being a a pretty useful design. And it forms the basis of what would become HP's first product. Now, HP did not exist as a company yet. But when uh, Hewlett had created this prototype, uh, which later would become the Model 200A, Mm-hmm. And by the way, the reason why it was called the Model 200A was to sort of give companies the idea that Hewlett Packard had been around as its own entity for a while. Sort of like when you start a new checking account and they ask you if you want your checks to be numbered at a different number so it looks like your account's older than it actually is. Or when you form a band and your first album is called Greatest Hits. Yes. Yes. That would be the <laughs> idea. Uh don't you know? I know that there are bands who have done that. I was going to say don't steal that, but technically, I guess I stole it. So anyway, uh, so Hewlett creates this prototype, and uh, during this process, before there's actually a company, um, a Disney engineer saw the prototype, the 200A, what what would become the 200A, mm-hmm. and uh, the Disney engineer was working on a little movie called Fantasia. Yes, we've talked about that too, about the uh, sense-around system. Yeah, it was definitely a big player in changing the way movie theaters uh, are designed, really. I mean, to, to truly show Fantasia in the way that it was meant to be shown, theaters were going to have to spend thousands of dollars renovating and changing out their systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, very few theaters uh, in the grand scheme of things actually followed through on this, but it did help push through the whole uh, surround sound era. Anyway, the engineer saw uh, potential uses for this oscillator, but not exactly in the form factor that it was in uh, in 1938. So he made some suggestions to uh, to Hewlett about uh, how to change that. And so Hewlett then went to work on that and would sell, in 1939, eight Model 200B oscillators mm-hmm. for the princely sum of $71.50 each. That was a lot of money back then. Yeah, that, that totaled out to be $572. Well, that's important because in 1939, 
Did you have something else in 1938? Well, I, I have a couple bits that actually go back before that. Oh, well, then we're going to have to backtrack. Well, just, just, a, just a tad. Um, to 1905, actually. Because this is sort of relevant, but it's not. I think this is one of the fascinating things about HP, because the thing I'm going to talk about is sort of legendary in HP lore. Okay. Uh, it's a house oh, built gotcha. at 367 Addison Avenue in Palo Alto, California. Right. Um, the residents there are Dr. John Spencer and his wife and two adult daughters. Uh, as a matter of fact, he was the first mayor of Palo Alto. But um, uh, actually, he divided the house in 1918 into two apartments. And uh, if you look at the Sanborn insurance maps in 1924, there's a 12 by 18 foot garage that appears on the property. Yeah, that garage is what I would call a shack. Yeah, kind of. If you look at a picture of it, it looks like a little bitty shack. Yes, yes. So, in, perhaps in, a love shack. In thirty-five, uh, uh, Dave Packard moved to Schenectady, New York, to work at GE. Um, see again, one of the early electrical pioneers. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bill finished his graduate work at at Stanford, um, and then went to MIT, returned to Palo Alto, and then that's where they, you know, that that's where uh, they ended up living was in that house because they had their first business meeting uh, in 1937. He, uh, Dave was still working at GE at the time. Yeah. And uh, Bill convinced him, hey, let's make a go for this. And uh, Fred Terman, who was the professor at Stanford, who had uh, sort of taken a shine to them, was the one who made a suggestion that maybe, just maybe, they should uh, use this, create this device, the oscillator you were talking about, to uh, detect negative feedback. Um so, yeah, in 39, that's when, uh, on January 1st, as a matter of fact, yep. uh, that's when they formalized the their partnership. They decided they were going to go and, and make a company. And I love the way they decided to choose a name. Heads or tails? No, we're not kidding. That's really how they decided whose name was going to be first. It was a coin flip, and Packard won, and yet he chose Hewlett Packard as the name. Well, I'm glad he did. Because HP, we know of as HP, but if it had ended up being PH, we would be like, wonder which one of them was more acidic. Or, that's a very base company. <laughs> or maybe people would talk about their stock and say, yeah, it's neutral. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of jokes that we could make, <laughs> but HP, we just did. Yeah, HP is uh, iconic now. Yes. And, and it, it, I think they, uh, they accidentally chose wisely. Yeah, so they formed this company January 1st, 1939, and they uh, the company is is essentially operating out of that little garage. Well, that's actually where Bill had been living, except in 1939, he married uh, Flora, his, mm-hmm. his wife, mm-hmm. uh, and then moved out. Yeah. Which uh, which was good because they needed a business office. Now, do you know how much money they spent to form this company? Well, I know I know how much money they had. It, well, I know the assets. Yes, the assets to the company. That's because not all about. of it was in cash. Right, right. Ah. Uh, $538 in cash and a used drill press. A used craftsman drill press. The, uh, by the way. interesting that somebody had documented that. If you're wondering what that is in today's dollars, yeah. $8,354. Not exactly a princely sum to found what would become a multinational, uh, multi-billion dollar com- company, you know? For those of you keeping score on the... Uh, tech stuff scorecard. That is the second time he's used the term princely sum in this podcast. Yeah, well, the uh, $572 that he made from Disney was (laughs) more than what their starting capital was. 
So they're doing so, pretty well. Yeah, they're they're profitable early on. Uh, anyway, um, so yeah, so 1939, they formed this company. They flipped the coin. They figured out what they're calling themselves, and they officially start to market the Model 200A oscillator, which was based on that prototype that Hewlett had built in his uh, master's thesis. Yeah, in uh, 1940, they they had they did pretty well pretty quickly because they were able to move out of the garage. Yeah, yeah. By the by the time 1939 ends, their revenue is five thousand three hundred sixty nine dollars, and they have two employees. Hey, but and then in 1940 they move into a leased building. They they don't own the building; they're still leasing space, but uh, they're able to expand outside of the garage. And in 1940, they do something spectacular. Are they, you talking about the the this is the business leadership part? Yes, they, where offer, they offer bonuses. They to offer their employees? a Christmas bonus to their employees, which that that was the princely sum. Drink. Of five dollars, <laughs> but again, five dollars wasn't uh, that wasn't uh, small at that point. Um, no, and they also then, adopted production bonuses too. They didn't have too many employees, so oh, it wasn't sure. wasn't a, a huge investment. But it was it does show an early example of what the founders thought was important when they were forming a company. They right. really this was an era. It's it's easy to forget today, right? But this was an era where. The idea of company loyalty was a big deal. Yeah. Especially because you're talking about after the Great Depression where things were so uncertain for so long. It was very important for companies to establish themselves as being reliable, as being uh, stable, and as being – it was a two-way street. You know, Employees would contribute uh, their work and their efforts – for the success of the company, and the company in turn would look after the employees. And so, not to make to say that everything every company did back then was good, but it was a different world than it is today. You know, today you might see someone with an engineering degree hop around quite a bit from company to company mm-hmm. as they find the best the best deal for themselves personally. Well, this was a different era where, you know, you 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 got hired by a company and you tended to stay there. Yeah, well, you were kind of expected to stay there, yeah. you know. Well, plus, you know, thinking again about the times, the economic times. This was fresh after the Great Depression. The company was still uh, it was hot on the heels of the recovery period, or in the recovery period, really. Yep. So you were kind of lucky to have a job. So they didn't have to do this, but they did anyway. And they also uh, offered it the company's first charitable donation, which was again the princely sum of five dollars. That's four times. Uh, so. Yeah, and and the way that they were able to be so successful so early on lay in Hewlett's design of these oscillators. Mm -hmm. Now, the oscillators that were on the market already before HP had formed were often sold for between $200 and $600. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Hewlett was able to create more efficient ways of, of building these devices using cheaper materials and uh, and even make them more reliable so they weren't just less expensive to create, but they were better oscillators than a lot of the ones that were on the market already. His 200A oscillator was sold for $54.40, which was a price apparently chosen because they liked the slogan 5440 or fight. Hmm. That's true. Which is, you know, this tells you something about the founders of HP, where they settle on the price for their... (laughs) For their I, products based upon popular slogans from the 19th century. 
that's okay with me. I always like the quirky companies. Yeah. Uh, you know, I got to say, though, this whole oscillator thing, I keep going back and forth on it. Uh-huh. So let's analyze some waves, shall we? Well, there was an interesting wave. Um, of course, 1941 was the year that the United States entered World War II mm-hmm. after uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, Bill decided to leave the company for a while. He served as an army officer until 1947. Yep. So Dave took over right. and said, all right, well, I'll leave the company until you come back. Right. And he did. And uh, that in 1941 was also when uh, uh, HP began the production of the 300A which was mm-hmm. a wave analyzer. Uh, sound, it was made for um, uh, measuring amplifiers. Uh, and then there was also a uh, a, a voltmeter that uh, Packard designed in 1941. Mm-hmm. And in 1942, that would start. That would be sold as the 400A. Mm-hmm. So, again, these <laughs> one thing I would I would. Uh, uh, scream out to to the the time vortex would be for uh, uh, Hewlett and Packard to name their products something other than numbers and then a letter because it's very confusing to me. But yes, the 300A is a wave analyzer. The 400A is a voltmeter. And then in 1942, uh, HP does another uh, jump in 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 the way of a, a company looking after its employees. Yes. It introduces health insurance uh-huh. for employees. Now, it's not the only company to do this, but it's one of the earliest ones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, they started uh, building the first HP-owned building. Uh, so we're looking now at, at just a couple years after the company uh, got on its feet. Yep. Um, it's able to construct its own building, and they decided they wanted the, uh, the floor plan to be wide open. Um, you know, it, it was supposed to be versatile. That's, that's kind of a practicality part of it. But it, as it turns out, it was also, it also made it easier for the company employees to share ideas and yeah. come up with, with new, uh, new kinds of concepts and new, uh, new products. Yeah. So this is a moving away from the old, everyone has their own office model. And at this point, everyone is eight employees. Well, you know, still kind of tiny. It is kind of tiny. Okay, so in 1943, mm-hmm. uh, HP got into microwaves, and we're not talking about cooking. We're talking about, again, making products for other businesses that use microwaves. So they were uh, getting into signal generators, Yeah, um, yeah so this, which is not something that you or I typically use as part of our day-to-day stuff. But, hey. No, no, not typically. No. Once, you know, once in a blue moon. Well, only when you need to generate signals. Right. Yeah, I'm pretty good at generating signals. Oh, yeah. You can't stop the signal. Nope. So anyway, all right. So in 1944, yeah. uh, the uh, the owner of the house um, was uh, who which with that in 1944. Let's start this over. In 1944, the uh, <laughs> the owner of the house with the garage yes uh, left Palo Alto, um, right. and when when she did, uh, the subsequent owners of the house continued to lease it out as apartments and, and even the garage too. Um, but we'll come back to this, believe it or not, because the. Uh, uh, the house in the garage will factor into the history of Palo Alto pretty significantly. Yeah. 
So August eighteenth, nineteen forty-seven. Yes. HP Incorporates. Ah, yes. And uh, Packard becomes the president of the company, and mm-hmm. Hewlett is the vice president of the company. Uh huh. And in that year, uh, the company generates eight hundred fifty-one thousand two hundred eighty-seven dollars in revenue and has one hundred eleven employees. So that's a pretty big jump. You know, this is still—it's not even a decade old yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's doing quite well. Um, the the electronics industry is blossoming right now. This is still early days for electronics, keep in mind. Yeah. And so uh, Hewlett-Packard's really on the, the cutting edge when it comes to creating electronic devices, specifically for other companies to help test their own equipment. Yep, yep. It's funny, I uh, have a, a uh, quote from Bill Hewlett that I got from the Hewlett-Packard uh, company timeline. Uh-huh. Um, he, he said, quote, we just happened to be on the top of the rocket when it took off. We were here with electronic products when electronics became a big thing. We went up with it. We don't deserve one damn bit of credit for the success of Hewlett Packard, end quote. <laughs> right. Um, so his point being that it was the right place at the right time and anyone who had done that would have been successful. Although I think that's definitely a lot of modesty on his part. I, I, I think so, too. Um, I, I think both of these guys obviously show a lot of... Um, courage and willing to take a risk on a fairly new uh, market. I think they also show a lot of uh, creativity and leadership. Yeah, and the fact that you, you know you got to remember products. both of them were both of them were engineers. Yes. So they came at this. They they created this company from the perspective of engineers. They were mm-hmm. not like business you know students who. Hey, let's had, come up with a company. What would it be about? Right, exactly. These were guys who were problem solvers, and yeah. then they built a company around that. And not that doesn't always work. No. Because the skill set to run a company and the skill set to be an engineer don't always overlap completely. Uh, so the fact that they were able to create this and make it work, that says a lot to their abilities. I think, I think again, that he was being quite modest with that, that quote. I agree. So, I, I just think it's funny that... Yeah. It shows this, the, you know, their pluck and their their attitude behind the company. Right, right. And, you know, it is important for us to focus on what their philosophy, you know, how, how they felt about things because uh, that's going to play an important role when we talk about HP, the company, as it is today. Mm-hmm. Because there are a lot of things that you can point to where, you know, you're like, how did the company that was this become the company that is this? It's not always positive or negative, mm-hmm. but it, there are some significant differences. Uh, so in 1948, HP produced the 400B voltmeter. Mm-hmm. So uh, still not anything that consumers would necessarily ever see. But um, uh, the next thing I have is in 1951. Do you mm-hmm. have anything before 51? Um, no, but just a general note from, again, from uh, HP's overall timeline. That, yeah. uh, Palo Alto and, and the time that they started this company was still fairly small. Of course, you know, Stanford is a very big university, mm-hmm. at least now, but I mean physically. Um, but uh, Palo Alto was, was kind of a smallish town. And uh, this is right about the time in the 1950s that uh, Hewlett Packard, the company, says that the city really started – to boom in size. Yeah. A lot of people started moving there, and a lot of people became interested in these fields, uh, electronics and, uh, well, early computing technology, business machines, I would say, at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it became a place to be. And I would argue, again, that this is partly due to the success of Hewlett-Packard, because I'm sure people were watching. 
Yeah, and uh, uh, I yeah. went in on that. How do I get to be a, a famous engineer? Well, you need to be in one of these companies like right. Hewlett Packard, right? Because these guys are cutting edge. Yeah, and uh, in 1951, they invent the company invents the high speed frequency counter, mm-hmm. which counts frequencies. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, you say that like it's a bad thing. The model is five two four A. Yeah, it actually it reduced the amount of time needed to measure very high frequencies. Mm-hmm. So it was again a useful device for other companies. Um, and in 1952, it introduced the 200 AB and 200 CD audio oscillators. Now, these oscillators replaced older oscillators in the the uh, HP line, like the 200A and the 200B that we talked about, the ones that were introduced back in 1939 and mm-hmm. 1940. Mm-hmm. Uh, those have been discontinued. Uh, yeah. They were they were outdated. And so the 200AB and 200CD were meant to uh, to solve the same problems as the 200A and 200B, but they were both more versatile mm-hmm. than the earlier models and uh, more sophisticated. Uh, so it kind of shows that HP was sticking with its its roots. Mm-hmm. It hadn't really started to branch out into other kinds of electronics yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the next thing I have is 1956. Are you talking about the oscilloscopes? Uh, well, we have them. HP produced its first oscilloscopes in 1956, but I was talking about a spin-off company that HP created. Oh, yes? Yes. Originally called Dynac. Ah, and then later it was changed to Dymec. Uh, now, in 1956, HP created the spin-off company called Dynac uh, originally, and it was um, um, meant to create special purpose systems that used building blocks that HP created. Mm-hmm. So almost like modular systems in a way. You would think like a company would need a, a particular company would need a very specific set of hardware in order to accomplish particular tasks. Uh-huh. Well, the purpose of Dynac, later Dymec, was to build these systems using mainly components designed by HP. So HP built the basic building blocks and Dymec mm-hmm. would assemble the systems. Now, do you know where they got how they came up with the name Dynac, or at least the the first two letters. I was going to say, I'm sure it has to go with dynamic. Well, it might be, no? but but really the the right way they settled on dy. Okay, so HP's logo mm-hmm. is lower, lowercase h, lowercase p. Mm-hmm. You turn that upside down, it looks like a d and a y. The h turns. <laughs> H turns into a Y and the P turns into a D. So you turn it upside down, you got DY. That's where I'm serious. That's really coin flips and, and turning logos upside down. That's how that's how HP ro- rolled back in the day. It reminds me of that soda that Seven Up created and flipped the letters upside down so it would be DNL. Yeah. So that's true though. That's so it was a spin-off company. Now later on, uh we'll and we'll get to it, but later on the company will merge back with HP and become a division within HP. But I'll I'll talk about that when it happens. Yeah. But they weren't ni- divisioned yet. In 1956 there was also a monumental uh creation within the company, uh the documentation of the HP Way. Yes. Which had uh six and then later seven uh Parts to it, and mm-hmm. I actually have them written down. Do you? Yes, I do. So, number one, recognize that profit is the best measure of a company's contribution to society and the ultimate source of corporate strength. Number two, continually improve the value of the products and services offered to customers. 
Number three, seek new opportunities for growth, but focus efforts on fields in which the company can make a contribution. Number four, provide employment opportunities that include the chance to share in the company's success. Number five, maintain an organizational environment that fosters individual motivation, initiative, and creativity. Number six, demonstrate good citizenship by making contributions to the community. Number seven, emphasize growth as a requirement for survival. So this was sort of the the foundation for HP's philosophy, mm-hmm. and you can see in that a lot of a, a lot of interesting points. I mean, obviously the emphasizing uh, profitability as saying this shows whether a corporation is doing is is good or not. Right. Uh, which you know you can argue. Because sometimes the most profitable thing is not always the best thing. Right. But the other elements within the HP way, talking about contributing to the community and being a good corporate citizen, that sort of helps balance out that first point. So that you don't, you know, obviously if it would come into conflict with being a good corporate citizen, you would really have to question whether or not that's the best course of action. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was a, a big deal, the HP way, and in fact would become the title of a of a, a novel later on, or a book, really, not a novel. Say, it's not a novel. Not a novel. It's a book. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but it, it becomes the title of a book later on. It was, and, however, uh, a novel idea. It was, in fact. So that was a, a very important part of HP's sort of corporate identity. Was laying that out. Yes. And so I have 1957. Yep. And I want to recommend to all of our listeners. If you have a time machine, go back to 1957 yeah. and get in, uh, you know, maybe around November 5th or so. Because on November 6th, Hewlett Packard had its first initial public offering of stock. with and, and each share was selling for the princely sum of $16. Yeah. Um, and and there were two reasons behind it. Which are kind of funny. And one of them was again AHP way. They wanted to help their uh, uh, employees to share, to have a share of the company, to have mm-hmm. a share of its success. And they also wanted to plan out the estates for the founders. And well, but, I, I can't blame them for and, that. And by the way, if you do have that time machine and you go back to 1957 to buy <laughs> HP stocks at sixteen dollars, mm-hmm. I highly recommend that you your second stop be 1999 and you sell that stock. And we'll explain why when we get into the later episodes of the HP story, because, well, we'll get there. Well, heck, I, I wish that I had the uh, time machine so that I could go back to when I was going, should I buy Apple stock for $15? Nah. I wish I could go. I'm a dummy. I wish I could go back to when I was deciding whether or not to have the breakfast muffin or the breakfast croissant this morning because I made the wrong choice. Okay, so anyway. So, um, oh, uh, also in 1957. Yes. Um, it, uh, started work in the Stanford Industrial Park in Palo Alto. Yep. Um, and again, they Starts were- to build a new building. Yep. And they were working toward making it comfortable for their employees and more productive. Yep. And right around this time is when Palo Alto is actually becoming what we call Silicon Valley today. Yes. So yeah, that little tiny sleepy town is starting to become the center of an entire industry. Mm-hmm. One that's- Probably one of the most influential industries in the 20th and 21st centuries, so far anyway. Yeah. But and the, it's also because these guys were influential in convincing other people that they could start their own tech companies yeah. and make it big. Yep. 
So then in uh, 1958, mm-hmm. uh, HP begins to create a division structure within the company. So yes. in this case, uh, HP is, again, trying to define its corporate structure. Well, and they're, they're bigger now. Yeah. And they have different kinds of stuff that they're doing. They're not just m- making measuring instruments anymore. But then again, you know, Packard and Hewlett were both uh, engineers. And so they felt that uh, a collaborative working environment was much more important than some sort of hierarchical top-down management system. So each division within HP was responsible for developing, producing, and marketing its own products. So you had all these different divisions within the company, but each one was almost its own autonomous unit, mm-hmm. and it was under the umbrella of HP. But uh, you know, the idea was that they didn't want to interfere or um, muddle with one division's work based upon you know some arbitrary decision. Now, both Packard and Hewlett like to walk around and visit various uh, employees and talk with them about their work and discuss what's going on and kind of share ideas, uh, which was their walking around management style. Yeah, that uh, that actually became its name. Uh, but they were famous for doing that. Yep. And... Uh, which is probably also the genesis of the term, the boss is coming, look busy. But yeah. it, actually, they, from what I've read uh, in, in doing my research for the podcast, they didn't really have that problem because HP inspired um, those early employees to work very hard because they felt their work was valued. Yep. And in 1958, HP acquired the F.L. Mosley Company, which produced graphic recorders. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being they would record things graphically, not that, you know, that the recordings were graphic. Yes. I'm, I'm thinking that uh, the description on the HP website probably uh, it would be better just to say this is where they started getting into printing. Yes. Very early printing. And yeah, this was that's graphical recording. The very first uh, HP acquisition. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, finally, for 1958, uh, for me anyway, you might have extra stuff. But Dave, 58. Dave Packard typed up. 11 simple rules. Yes. Mm-hmm. So this was part, uh, he was doing this as part of a, the company had an, a management convention they would hold every year. And, um, and it was discovered later on in his correspondence file. But mm-hmm. these were the 11 simple rules that Packard believed one should follow. Number one, think first of the other fellow. Hmm. Number two, build up the other person's sense of importance. Number three, Respect the other man's personality rights. Number four, give sincere appreciation. Appreciation? Appreciation. I'm having my little British moment again. Appreciate you. Number five, eliminate the negative. Number six, avoid openly trying to reform people. Number seven, try to understand the other person. Number eight, check first impressions. Number nine, take care with the little details. Number ten, develop genuine interest in people. Number eleven, keep it up. So this was sort of his rules about just interacting with other people. And it's interesting. Again, you know, kind of an engineer's way of yeah. looking at how do I interact with this person who is not me. Uh, and uh, I like that it really puts a lot of emphasis on respecting the other person and getting to know that other person. And also, you know, yes, you'll get a first impression when you when you first meet someone, but keep in mind that a first impression may not be an accurate representation of who that person is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, most people, when they meet me, think I'm really awesome, but, you know, spend five minutes with me and the whole, whole jerk thing comes around. It's really not generally... Never mind. Um, so, okay, some first impressions are accurate. 
But anyway, uh, yeah, this was this was sort of his um, his philosophy on dealing with other people, and this became sort of a, a kind of a, a again a philosophy of management style within HP. Yes. Now, I say that we conclude this podcast in 1958 and we pick up again for part two in 1959. Okay, we can do that. Excellent. So this is part one of the HP story. We will continue with at least one more and probably two more parts because this is a very complex company that's done a lot of things in its, in its storied history. Uh, so let's conclude here. If you guys have any suggestions that you would like us to cover in future episodes, let us know on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle there is TechStuffHSW. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House of Work's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?